Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to week three of CQ University's annual Festival of Change, where we discuss, listen, celebrate, and learn from a range of people and initiatives that focus on critical issues in our communities and innovative approaches to creating positive social and economic change. This week, we focus on healthy and connected communities. What are the characteristics of well-functioning communities? What can individuals or institutions do to contribute to community well-being? And we ask our panel members to share their practical experiences across education, health and community services today. And we're delighted that we welcome three panel members spread across Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria. So let me introduce our panel members. We have Monica Davis uh, from the Country University Centre. Monica lives in Cooma in New South Wales and travels around to a range of um, uh, CUC's uh, university centres where she's the education director. And in this role, she focuses on student support and collaborations with Australian universities, including CQ University, to make higher education more accessible to regional, rural and remote students. Monica has a strong focus on research and on documenting the success of the Country University Centre. And in 2019, she published a paper in the peer-reviewed Journal of Student Success on student engagement. She's currently working on projects in regional career advice for mature age students and building self-efficacy for students studying by distance. Welcome to the panel, Monica. For having me, Lara. It's really exciting to be a part of such an interesting group today. Fabulous. Thank you. Next, we have Rowan Fitzgerald. Rowan commenced as the Chief Executive of Western District Health Service in uh, Hamilton in Western Victoria in August 2014. He was previously Chief Executive at Stahl Regional Health and has held senior management and board positions across the health sector over many years. He's passionate about creating healthy communities and has used the commercial operations of the hospital uh, to lead a range of public health initiatives, which I'm sure we'll hear more about today. Rowan has also introduced innovative education programs to address the shortfall of health professionals expected across acute, aged and community health settings. He's a strong advocate for rural health and supporting communities to receive high quality services close to home. And Rowan has assured me that by the end of this panel session today, we will have solved the problem and answered the question of how do you create healthy and connected communities across regional Australia? Isn't that right, Rowan? Absolutely, Lara. I reckon we're gonna have this nailed in an hour. The thing I've found across my journey with trying to create healthier communities is the closer I get to finding a solution, the further away I seem to be from achieving it. And uh, it seems to be a continual evolutionary process and occasionally you need a revolution as well along the journey. We look forward to hearing about those revolutions. Thank you. 
And finally, we have Colleen Tribe. Colleen's the General Manager of Rosebury, Queensland, delivering programs in housing and tenancy, youth shelters, early intervention, mental health, high intensity psychological services and clinical care coordination to young people, youth and family services, education and employment pathways. Colleen's based in Gladstone in central Queensland and having worked in the area for more than 20 years, she's devoted to continually growing Rosebury and ensuring that regional areas are serviced adequately. Welcome, Colleen. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Lara. Happy to be here. Lovely. We know that healthy communities need more than just healthcare providers. They need access to fresh, affordable food, fitness and recreation facilities, education options, local services often provided by local government, and a wide range of opportunities to support connectedness and community purpose. Today, our expert panel uh, members will discuss their role uh, and the role that their organisation plays in building the health and connectedness of the people and the systems within their own community. So I'm going to start with a pretty broad question. Colleen, I might start with you today. We're interested in understanding what's the basis or the ingredients for healthy and connected community. And um, that might be specific just to your region around central Queensland and Gladstone, or you might uh, want to interpret it as broader than that. Um, and we're particularly interested in also understanding some of the community or social issues arising in your region. Thanks, Lara. Uh, I think that um, probably I'll start with the, the word connected, um, connected, seem to be the umbrella for uh, ensuring that we have a, a healthy community. We've really found that uh, during COVID, particularly the uh, isolation period here that we had in um, Queensland, uh, we needed to make sure that uh, people f still felt connected even though they were uh, staying home. So um, we have found that um, there has been an increase in mental health issues um, that have been exacerbated by um, the COVID period. On uh, a housing side of um, our services, we have a dignity hub that a lot of, uh, we have probably up to 120 people access that um, hub per week. Uh, and having closed that down, having to close it down during isolation, we found that was, uh, you know, very problematic for people because sometimes that was their only connection to community. So that had a large effect on the community. So we had, as part of the recovery plan, we made sure that um, the staff that we had at the Dignity Hub still made connections to people, even though, you know, it was at home and socially distanced. Um, that small amount of time that we that we made that connection had all the the difference in the world to ensuring that health um, and the healthy community remained. That's fantastic. It's really that personal contact and that um, recognition of people as individuals, isn't it, that you're focusing on um, rather than looking at um, people as having generic needs or common needs. Um, it's really taking that very personalised approach to meeting their needs, isn't it? I think it's really important to keep that personal level. Uh, once we start losing that, um, we, we start losing the purpose of the of what we're about and the organisation takes on something completely different. So I think that um, we are really lucky 
um, here in central Queensland because we are very connected to the community. That's great. Thanks so much, Colleen. Monica, I'm interested in your um, experience. So when we talk about community, you have many communities that the Country University Centre um, has within its remit. I'm interested in how you um, uh, understand the concept or how you see the concept of a healthy and connected community when your stakeholders are, are spread really broadly across regional New South Wales. Sure, thanks, Sarah. Um, so as you know, I work with the Country University Centre. So we are a network of regional study hubs across New South Wales. So the Country University Centre started in Cooma in 2013 and it was driven by the Cooma community. So the Cooma community knew that they were looking for ways to keep young people in our towns, but also for a way to attract uh, professionals to come to our town as well. So looking for ways to retain people and, and build on activities that they're able to do in the community, both for themselves continuing their professional development, but also uh, for spouses and children as well, to be able, able to have a further pathway into education. Um, so each of these centres is community owned uh, and then is supported by the um, central office in Cooma. And what we found is that one of the key tenets of the Country University Centre is that we're empowering communities to bring that change that they want to see themselves. So we've recognised that education is a key part to building a healthy community. It both feeds into workforce pathways and workforce flows, but it also adds to the cultural depth of a community. And we also find that it builds aspiration, building on the concept that if you can see it, then you can be it. But beyond that, we find that each community has its own special challenges that they need to work towards. And we've found that the secret to that is through that community empowerment. So making sure that everybody has the resources and the knowledge to build a a, a solution that's specific to their region and builds upon their unique understanding of what can work to build on their community. That's fantastic. Thank you for that. It's the most amazing story of success, isn't it? Um, the growth of the Country University Centre and the fact that you're, you're just about to embark on opening so many more. I think it really shows how much you've made to develop a model that um, meets the needs, as you say, of all of those various communities. Rowan, I might move on to you and, um, you know, when we talk about healthy and connected communities, it's probably a bit simplistic to say, um, well, obviously the hospital's got to be integral to something like that. Really interested to understand how you see your role and that of the, the hospital service in the town of Hamilton and the broader region. Um, uh, so maybe you can reflect a little bit on some of the work you're doing at the moment. Thanks, Lara. And by way of background, our organisation has 800 staff. Uh, we service a population of 16,000 people. Uh, we provide emergency department services, theatre services, 24 hours a day, ICU, intensive care unit, uh, medical uh, ward, um, surgical wards. And we provide around about 175 aged care beds uh, across our local area as well. So. Um, very complex organisation, uh, large regional community, and we're always looking at ways in which we can support people to be healthier. And it's easier said than done. It is a real struggle. And, you know, I get very passionate about um, supporting people to be healthier. And I always bring it back to the personal because that increases my level sort of passion and sometimes frustration at uh, what I'm seeing uh, across our society and the political spectrum 
in terms of the apathy that we sometimes see uh, with people lacking drive and energy to get the job done. The thing that really gets on my goat is that my kids in a regional area die sooner than someone who lives in metropolitan Melbourne. Why is that? How does that happen? Uh, my kids are going to have more chronic disease um, than someone in metropolitan Melbourne. And you know, from our perspective, it's about how do we then support people to change their mindset? And that is a significant dilemma for us as a health sector. The drive for us as public hospitals for aged care providers and others to actually stimulate community conversations to be a little bit controversial aren't really there. And because everyone is concerned about playing a high-risk game, you know, it's, it's hard when you put yourself out there and uh, you challenge the status quo because no one wants to be vilified for having a different opinion. Um, a few years ago, I'll just touch on one of the things I've done, and this was the one that wasn't successful, so it's probably good to talk about it. Um, I called for a sugar tax uh, to be applied across Australia, and I, I started activating the local community, and Channel 7 got a hold of it and ran it up a flagpole. I have never had so many negative comments in all my life in relation to generating a public discussion but you've got to be courageous with these sorts of things. You've got to absorb as a health leader some of the negativity because that is going to ultimately lead to transformational change that's required within our sector. I mean, it's unacceptable that we have a million people a year um, that are admitted to public hospitals across Victoria with a primary diagnosis of diabetes. What do we know about type 2 diabetes? It's completely preventable through diet and exercise and those sorts of things. So as an organisation, our focus is really looking at community engagement, but we're not funded for that. But organisations have to shift their thinking, from my perspective, from being around what you should be doing to what you need to be doing to assist the community to actually be healthier. And that vision in itself of creating healthier communities then led uh, us to be the first public health service across Australia to remove sugary drinks in 2015, I think it was. Now, that really surprised me from a leadership perspective that one small thing that we could do had not been done by any other public hospitals at that stage. In fact, it was quite a controversial move. I had people calling me up telling me that I needed to bring back all of the fizzy drinks that we'd got removed from our internal cafeteria. But the profound impact that those decisions make ripple throughout the community over many, many years. But once again, as a leader and as an organisation and as a large organisation within the rural communities, it's incumbent upon me to make some tough calls and to, at times, lead a conversation with the community. And that's very much what we've done. Um, Ron, can I add to some of the things you just said there? Um, that you started that discussion with saying, why, why do my kids have lower opportunities than someone in a metropolitan area? And I think that really feeds into what you're saying about the vision being most important. So once you understand that problem and you refuse to accept that that is the way it is and should be, that's the first point to start from. And it sounds so simple, but I often find that in a regional area, we're told to accept a lower standard of both healthcare, education and so on and so forth. So we know that when we look at university education, you are half as likely to have a university degree if you're from a regional area 
than if you're from a metropolitan area. Every now and again, I'll come across someone who says, well, why does someone in a regional town need a university degree? So that sets you back even further from, you know, even starting to solve that problem is agreeing that there is a problem that should be fixed. So I think you're completely right in setting that vision. And once you have that vision confirmed, that then you can start to make some real progress from there. Yeah, and I think the vision needs to be more than just for the organisations uh, and large institutions. The vision needs to be for community members and younger people in particular. I think what's coming through for me in this conversation is how important it is for one person or a small group of people to maybe have a vision that the community can aspire to more and expect more. It sort of takes this, this small coalition of people to really take um, a leadership charge and, you know, bring the rest of the community along the way. Um, Colleen, is that how it feels for you sometimes uh, in Gladstone, that you're sort of fighting against the, the stream to be able to advocate for your clients and the services that they need? I think it's a little bit different in Gladstone, um, particularly because we are an industrial town. So we have um, quite a, you know, quite a few large companies in Gladstone that really promote um, higher education, um, you know, um, apprenticeships, traineeships, things like that. The thing that we're fighting against those, we're working for the most vulnerable people in the community. So I understand what Rowan's saying, the, the demographic that we are working with probably comes in in even uh, differently again in that people that um, are being targeted to go on to tertiary education or apprenticeships and traineeships are doing quite well but our clientele we need to advocate for them even more so um, in that they are um, competing against people that ordinarily they wouldn't even think themselves worthy to compete against. So we're trying to lift that uh, that attitude and that that um, mindset. Have you noticed that that's even harder in the current um, environment with COVID nineteen sort of bearing down on people? And you know, maybe uh, we're certainly seeing young people feeling a, some greater sense of limitation around what their future might look like. How's that impacting on your work and yeah. your clients, particularly young people? I think that, you know, looking at the economic recovery and how that's going, I think people are really focused on making sure that jobs are retained or are given back to people that have lost jobs. So the focus on young people getting jobs at the moment or traineeships or apprenticeships has lost a little bit of momentum. The other thing that we're noticing up here is that um, there seems to be an increase in women that are unemployed. So that has increased and that's problematic as well. We know we need to make sure that the focus is across the board. Monica, I'm interested in your students. You mentioned that there's sometimes a perception that in the regions you should expect less and not aspire to higher education, but obviously you're doing an amazing job driving that aspiration. How are your students feeling about their, their sense of the future? And are you seeing that's driving more of an interest in, in training and education at the moment? Um, I think that there is, um, in people who are looking at studying regional areas, there's often a high aspiration, but 
there's not much guidance around how to surpass those roadblocks. So like Rowan said, you know, kids in regional towns say, look, I'm, I'm not smart enough. I didn't get the ATAR for it and it's too expensive. So a lot of those barriers that, that sit there become prohibitive for a regional kid. So we find that um, in starting to overcome some of those problems, so access, opportunity and support, once you start to remove some of those barriers, it becomes obvious to people that they can do that. And that starts to open up those dreams a little bit more. Um, so whether that's looking at um, saying, look, I've, I've always dreamed of being a nurse, but I didn't want to go away to university and I can't get away to do the practical placements. Once you start to find some of those solutions, then that really starts to tap into that, that optimism and seeing those opportunities as being a reality. Um, the other part of that triangle that we often talk about is support because there are challenges both in getting to university but also staying there as well for online students. We know that they had um, traditionally very high attrition rates so making sure that they have a community, a learning community around them to support them to stay in that study. So making sure that they feel as if they belong as a student and we can do that by connecting them with other students in the region um, and also by making sure that if they hit a roadblock then they've got the support there that they need. So I think that in providing those opportunities and, and access that um, does certainly change the perception of regional people. Um, and I think that also with greater connectivity through the internet, that starts to open up some more opportunities as well. So we're seeing more and more um, universities offer um, courses online and that starts to, um, I guess, widen the horizon a little bit further as well. Rowan, we first got to know you at the university um, because you were talking to us about education and it was very much uh, around a personalised, localised approach to um, developing people in your region and for your future employees. Do you want to tell us a little bit about why um, CEO of a hospital so focused on education? Yeah, well, if you look at the social determinants of health, education is right up there in terms of being a priority to improve health outcomes. And uh, I'm a little bit different when it comes to what sort of things we need to do as a health service. But I feel that I have an obligation to my local community. I live here. I love the people that I live with. Uh, I have a great connection to my local community and I want to see them succeed. And sometimes that means taking risks. And that means looking at innovative education models, um, models of delivery of care uh, within our organisation and that's why we sort of came up with a solution to CQ um, to look at, look at how we can deliver a Bachelor of Nursing program uh, in the Western District area. Um, we don't have any university uh, for 100 kilometres either side of us. Um, there was suggestion that uh, the university services that were actually coming out to the region were going to be reduced over time as well so it's really essential from our perspective looking at our um, future needs as an organisation and our requirements for really highly qualified skilled uh, nursing workforce that we needed to look at what would be a local solution and so what we've seen is actually a better um, outcome in terms of the capability of those students who have gone through the CQ University program because it's almost going back to the, the old days where someone's training within the organisation and developing their skills within the organisation. And what we've done recently is expand on that. And we've said, we just don't want to stop at a bachelor's, bachelor level program. We want to now look at a master's level program as well, which we've uh, put in place over the course of the last few years. And at the back end of that, we're working uh, with, with TAFE colleges as well. 
and supporting our staff in terms of micro-credentials. And there's been a lot discussed around micro-credentials recently. And from my perspective, I think they are a really ideal tool. Um, but we've got this pathway where people can now go from micro-credentials through to a, a TAFE program, through to a Bachelor of Nursing program, and then through to higher education and Masters and potentially PhD level. And I think that's a, a marvellous outcome for local and regional communities that didn't exist three or four years ago. You mentioned when you started talking about some of the public health initiatives, such as reducing soft drinks, for example, that you found that some people were really challenged by the hospital or you raising what might be seen as some challenging or unusual conversations beyond what they might expect um, you to do. Do you see that as you progressively introduce new conversations to the community, so with soft drinks and, and um, health initiatives and reducing obesity and its education and looking at employment pathways and, and um, promoting education as a way of raising general aspiration, you see that the community's perception of the hospital is changing. Are those conversations getting easier to introduce each time you introduce something that might not be seen as typical of a health service? Yeah, I think it's important to be genuine about these sorts of things. It needs an honesty. You know, you really need to believe what you're talking about. Now, everything you do in a rural area in particular, and Monica was talking about this, is a team game. You know, everyone needs to be involved on the team. And now people participate at different levels. There's no doubt about that. But you do need to have an engagement strategy that allows people to come into what you're trying to achieve. And that's very much what we've been successful in doing over the course of the last few years. So I'm conscious we've got questions coming in thick and fast from the audience. The first question uh, that we've gotten, um, Colleen, I might ask you to consider this one uh, we live in a society which has a sick care model rather than a health care model we address health problems after people are sick rather than being radically proactive in health and wellness promotion how would you go about addressing this imbalance or is that already what rosebury is doing we have developed a adaptable living program at rosebury um, really catering for low-income um, households, how to, how to cook a nutritious meal on a low income. And following on from that, we have um, a couple of youth shelters. So our adaptable living program, we make sure that uh, we have the nutritious program, but how to cook a meal on a low income or, you know, a, a nutritious meal uh, with minimal um, cost. So um, we're trying to, as far as um, the sick care, we're trying to actually go the other way and make sure that we have that early intervention um, before we get to that. And a lot of our clients are coming from intergenerational poverty. So um, that is the environment that they've come from. So, um, you know, the quick, uh, the quick meals that possibly weren't nutritious um, because some people are not able to understand that um, nutritious meals don't have to be expensive. It's mm -hmm. really interesting, Colleen. One of the questions that's come in uh, as a follow-up is, uh, do you have any research or data on the positive impact of the community development work you've been doing in relation to improvements in mental and physical health? Yes. Um, we have 
data like there's in No Tomorrow. Um, but, so we have 18 different programs with uh, Rosebury. Um, so we have uh, tracking data along the K10 um, with Headspace. Um, we have uh, different um, data systems that we collect. But I think the, the most important data that you can ever collect is that anecdotal actually talking to clients and seeing how they are and seeing how they are progressing. So those conversations, um, we can't just enter everything onto a computer. We need to have those as well. So, you know, sit down and have a yarn with people, see how they're really tracking, uh, making sure that we take the time to listen. And um, Monica, I'm interested in how you're able to track the impact of the work that you're doing in the individual communities you're going into. Really interesting question. Um, so we've got some very direct measures of how we track that impact. So that's looking at student numbers and how students are progressing through their degree. Um, over the bigger picture, um, like Ron said, a lot of these are long-term um, uh, studies or long-term um, uh, projects that we're looking to have an impact. So one of the things we're really interested in is what's the impact of the demographics of our towns. So we know that in regional areas there's often a big hollowing out through the population through the um, 18 to 35 year olds where most of them will leave a regional area and move to a metropolitan area. So that's something we're watching really closely and um, I'm eagerly awaiting the 2021 census um, uh, to try and see whether we're having an impact on, on that scale to see that data as well. So um, really looking at, at how on a bigger picture, how we can impact those communities. And we've been looking at some really interesting um, uh, connections between students and workforces and whether the, we can start to um, work more closely with workforces to say, okay, this is where the need is now, but in five years time, where will those needs be? So, for example, we're just about to open a centre in Parks, which has been identified as a special activation precinct, and we know it will be the hub for the inland rail. So what can we do now to try and have that longer-term impact, especially keeping in mind that higher education takes some time, part-time degrees take eight years. So how can we integrate that to, to have those seamless um, collect connections and collaborations between helping people feed into study and onwards into workforce through there. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Look, we've got, I think, time just for one more question. And the question that's come in from the, the audience, and I might open it up to see who wants to address it. How can we go about learning from Indigenous communities and tr traditional ways of knowing about healthy and connected communities? Um, I'll start off. We um, we have lots of conversations with um, Indigenous communities um, looking at family setup and how we can listen and learn um, with family setup and uh, also with young people, how family can help young people. And um, are, you, are you finding that that's part of the data gathering that you're getting from your community and that that's influencing the way you deliver your services now? Or is that something that you're looking to incorporate it further into the future? I think that we've got a long way to go um, in uh, making sure that we are culturally aware um, and uh, working with um, our uh, Indigenous um, and traditional landowners um, and I think that um, particularly with young people we need to make sure that we're doing the right thing by communities, uh, restorative justice, things like that. Um, I think we've got a long way to go, Lara. I'll say that um, 
we can learn a lot from Indigenous cultures generally in terms of holistic healthcare. Uh, healthcare shouldn't just be about sick people. It's about the spirituality of healthcare. It's about the emotional support that we need to provide to people and the mental health issues that are associated with just general day-to-day -day living. And until we start to think more broadly about individuals as being not just individuals inwardly looking, but inwardly and outwardly looking, we're not going to achieve the sorts of outcomes that we're aspiring to in terms of a healthier community. It's a significantly complex problem, but it's one that we can learn a lot from Aboriginal culture in particular and applying some of those traditional techniques to society and societal values, and that would improve health outcomes for people today. Thank you. Um, as Colleen Rahm both said, those connections with community and, and family are so incredibly important, um, particularly for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Uh, we find that across the CECs, we have a very high proportion of Indigenous students, much higher than um, we often see in the metropolitan and regional universities. So across the network, um, we have 9.5% of our students have an Indigenous background. Uh, and in towns like Mori and Narrabah, it's as high as 20%. Uh, whereas across Australia, for university students, it's only 1.8%. So what we find is that in our student cohorts, they're quite representative of the communities that they come from. So in Broken Hill, our Indigenous uh, students are 11%. And we know that the Indigenous population of Broken Hill is quite similar to that as well. So once those opportunities are there and you can work with an understanding of, of how important the connections with community and family can be, then it, it removes a lot of those barriers that are usually perceived for um, people from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to, to take up those opportunities for education. That's fantastic. Look, thanks so much, everyone. I note that we are just on 1.30 and we are keen to wrap this up. Um, as I predicted, um, we could probably have kept on talking for another couple of hours. We started this conversation talking about anchor institutions. Uh, and I think what I've really taken from this is that in order to get change in, um, particularly in, in tight-knit uh, communities, often regional communities, it takes more than just an organisation. It takes an individual or individuals who really have a vision to, uh, to drive change and to uh, aspire to more for their community and on uh, behalf of their community. Very much about taking a long-term view, recognition that change can often be um, a challenge, not only for the people that you, that you hope will benefit, but also for the systems and the organisations around you, and that that long-term view is absolutely essential. And one of the things I really picked up on is that um, in order for healthy and connected communities to be sustained, it needs to be inclusive at all stages, that it's not just led by senior people leading important organisations, that it needs to be inclusive of all of the people who are affected by the change. Uh, and whether that's a short-term um, involvement in a, in a project or a long-term interest and involvement in the change, how important it is for the community to come along for the ride and not just be dragged uh, uh, along kicking and screaming. Um, uh, interestingly, some echoes in those observations uh, around um, startup communities, the, the same characteristics are required for communities to be innovative um, and there's a body of work around startup communities. So it's interesting that you've drawn out a lot of those parallels in the conversations today. 
I'd really like to thank um, our panel, Monica, Colleen and Rowan. I've really enjoyed speaking with each of you. And while I know a lot of you through the work you do with us as a university, it's been fantastic to hear the three of you in conversation um, and put your different work in context. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.